This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning and welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway and as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. Our guest on Campus Voices this morning is Jenna Johnson, who is the Deputy Democracy Editor at the Washington Post, where she manages a team of reporters both in Washington, D.C., but also all around the country who are chronicling the impact of voting laws and political pressure on election administrators with the attempts to undermine the public will. She has been back on campus earlier this week to present the Celine Lecture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and joins us today to talk about the, her concerns about the erosion of democracy and most importantly, what all of you listening this morning can do about it. Jenna, welcome back to the hallowed halls of Anderson Hall and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Oh, it's so good to be back. Now, you have had a long storied career with the Washington Post beginning right after you graduated in 2007. Tell us what the path was that got you there in the first place. Sure. Uh, so I graduated from UNL in 2007. Uh, I had done internships and worked at the Daily Nebraskan while I was here. And then after my senior year, moved to DC for an internship at the Post uh, and just never left. I've uh, covered local news, uh, county school board meetings, uh, crime in the city, uh, Maryland politics, higher education. And in or 2015, I moved to the national desk and started covering politics. I uh, covered two presidential elections, the White House, the midterm, uh, and then moved into editing. Um, after the 2020 election, the Post decided to uh, put together a team of reporters and editors just focused on democracy and exploring. Uh, we, we write a lot about the voting process um, and attacks on the voting process, um, but we also do stories that just explore why don't more Americans have faith in the system? Um, why is it that uh, democracy in this country uh, seems like it's eroding away in so many ways? Uh, we do a lot of explanatory journalism. We do a lot of fact-checking. Uh, it's a fascinating area um, and just so excited to be here talking with you about it. Never a more important time for what you do than right now. How big a team do you have, all, all told? So I directly edit three reporters, and we have oh, like half a dozen reporters who are on our team, uh, but we also do a lot of partnering with other reporters on other desks. Uh, almost everything that we do crosses over with someone's territory, <laughs> and uh, uh, just because of a topic like democracy touches every aspect of our lives. Uh, so we've been partnering a lot with the education team, um, with correspondents who are based across the country. We've been talking with foreign correspondents about um, comparing uh, the system in the United States to what's happening in other countries. Uh, we work pretty closely with our politics uh, colleagues, uh, especially following the midterm election. Seems like a natural fit on that one in particular. Yeah. Uh, for folks who may not be as deeply steeped in, in journalistic um, tech, or terminology, as an editor, where you are the deputy democracy editor, does that mean you no longer do any reporting? Are you, are you editing entirely at this point, or do you still get to pen a story now and then? Uh, just editing uh, and helping uh, partner with reporters on 
um, the stories that they're working on, um, helping talk them through uh, what they should be doing, who they should be calling, um, helping them fine tune the writing. Um, and then a new, a big new part of being an editor these days is trying to get that story to as many readers as possible. Um, you know, making sure that it has um, the best artwork with it, the best photographs, that if there are opportunities to partner with um, a podcast or get the reporter booked on local TV or national TV to talk about their work, um, to do a vertical video that can be on social media, um, we're really trying to um, get the work that we do in front of more people and not waiting for them to um, just come onto our website to find it. When you started in 2007, we'd never heard of words like TikTok and things along that line. How have the number of platforms proliferated in just since the time you've been there? Yeah, it hasn't been that long, but it, it has changed very, very quickly. Uh, a couple years into being a reporter, uh, I went out to cover a hurricane and I was one of the few reporters on staff who had a smartphone. I think I had a Blackberry at the time and afterwards, um, you know, put together some thoughts on why all reporters should have Blackberries because it made it easy to file feeds from, from the scene, um, which sounds so quaint, <laughs> um, but it just shows how very quickly things have changed. And um, I mean, we're just living in an age where there's so much information out there. There's so much content out there. Um, and not all of it is fact-based. You know, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there. And um, so a big part of our jobs is just to try to make sure that we are loudly telling people what's actually happening and hoping that we're heard. Which brings us to today's topic exactly because you're here specifically to talk about uh, democracy and, and the erosion of that. I recall when your paper added democracy dies in darkness underneath the uh, masthead or the nameplate. I forget what you call that at the top of it now. I'm a broadcast guy after all. But I remember seeing that and thinking, that's an interesting choice of words. It's interesting timing. And I remember there being some debate among certain folks online about why that phrase and why then. Do you have any insight you can share with us about why that got added? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it just felt like um, I, I was not part of this decision at all, um, but the way that it was explained to us was just um, that we were living at a time where it felt like we needed to um, put our mission uh, into words and um, to put it out there. Um, you know, I think all of us in the Washington Post newsroom uh, knew that the importance of light and of bringing issues of all sorts um, into the light. Um, you know, I mean, many of us, if all of us got into this line of work because we see it as a public service. We see a very important role that we play um, in this country. And, uh, you know, so it was, uh, um, you know, kind of a just putting all of that into a few words um, just to remind people of what, what we were doing. And to make it clear every time somebody looks at the paper that that's out there, that's uh, and on your website and the print editions and everywhere. You've said that you're pointing to two driving factors behind the erosion of democracy in the U.S. What are those two and how do you think we got here? Yeah, well, I mean, there's numerous factors, but two of the biggest ones are um, just 
the really intense polarization that is going on in the country. There have always been divisions. Uh, this nation has gone through a lot of really difficult times. Um, but we're at a moment now where uh, many Americans uh, just see the world completely differently. Um, you know, for a long time, people disagreed about how they felt about the facts, but it does feel like we're kind of in this moment where sometimes we can't even agree on what the facts are. And, um, you know, it, you know, there can be um, divisions politically. There can be divisions between urban areas and rural areas. Um, there can be racial divisions. Um, there can be economic divisions, um, all of which have many driving factors. But just this, this fact that we're in this moment where everything feels so polarized and, and so charged. Um, and then at the same time, we have so much disinformation and misinformation that is out there. Um, it can be difficult, um, you know, as you're scanning through your social media accounts, uh, it can be difficult to tell what's real and what's not real, what's true and not true. Um, we now have AI that's generating photos and videos. Um, I mean, deep fakes have always been a thing, but they've gotten really good. And it can be difficult to figure out what's real and what's not and what's fact and what's not. And there's just such an overload of the information that's out there. I mean, I can't read every piece of journalism that the Washington Post puts out every day. We, we produce so, so much. Um, and I think it can be easy for many Americans to just not be sure how to navigate it and um, to not be sure what's real and what's real not and what's true and what's not. And you can just kind of hit this point of um, complacency where you just kind of opt out of it all and live your life. And, you know, so for those, for those reasons, it really feels like these two things – this polarization at the same time that you have all of this fake information out there, it just kind of creates this storm that, that has produced this moment that we're in. There's been much talked about and written about the concept of, of news burnout that we're just, because we can't seem to get away from it. I'm a particular age where I remember growing up as a kid having one daily newspaper to read there were two in town at the time, but my parents ideologically identified with one over the other. An evening newscast to watch on one of the three commercial networks that we got in on our television, over-the-air television, and maybe during the day listening to some radio news from one of the local outlets. But that was it. And we sort of built our day around, I'll read the paper in the morning, I'll watch the evening newscast, maybe talk about it a little bit after that, and then we'll call it a day. Now, and this started with the Blackberry. I don't know if you remember the, the derisive name that was assigned to it at the time, the Crackberry, yes. because people got addicted to it, that that's how we've become with our media outlets, with the internet starting it, and now with mobile devices, that the news burnout does seem to be a thing, and that must be concerning to you and your colleagues. Yeah, it's absolutely a thing. Uh, not for everyone, um, and not on every topic, um, but... Yeah, it's, it's really, the advice I give to, sometimes I'll have close friends or family say, uh, 
kind of laying out what you just laid out, like what's something manageable I can do (laughs) to make sure I'm following the news? And the advice that I give to them is pick one thing that you trust and just do that, you know? Um, I mean, I would hope it's the Washington Post, Um, you know, but maybe it's um, NPR. Maybe it's your local newspaper. And pick one thing and just commit to that (laughs) and follow that. Um, Try to stay engaged. Try to keep up with what's going on. Um, The thing with news burnout is if people opt out of actively seeking out the morning news or the evening news, they're not escaping the news entirely. They're still seeing news that's coming across um, their Instagram feed or their TikTok feed or their colleague sitting next to them at work is telling them the news. Um, They're still hearing about what's going on in the country, but they're not necessarily hearing it from um, the most reliable sources. And um, that's where I think we need to figure out um, just how do we get into the lives of those people in a better way and uh, help them realize the need, even though we're burnt out on it. And I get it. Listen, I have a two-year-old. <laughs> I get it. Um, but to, to push people to still stay engaged a little bit. There's a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Norman Rockwell's Four Freedoms posters that get used a lot. And one of them is the, the quintessential one of the young man standing up at the meeting, the town hall meeting, which apparently was based on an actual meeting that Rockwell attended. Uh, to just raise his voice about a concern he had at a city council meeting and other people looking at him thoughtfully. Part of me wonders if we're still capable of that decorum at our meetings today, but the gist of that picture speaks to just what you mentioned, which is not just being aware of the news, but using the news to become civically engaged and knowing when that school board meeting is or that city council meeting, which is one of the things that particularly print journalism has always been so good about being the, the journal of record of what's happening in your own community. But then inspiring people to say, well, I don't like where they're going to put that road, or I don't like what they're doing with our voting rights or whatever, and then showing up and making your voice heard at those appropriate functions. I can't imagine journalism going away that leads to that kind of civic engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, so often we hear of the examples of uh, civic engagement not working. You know, we see the footage from a local city council meeting where, um, people are screaming at each other or threatening each other um, or even getting physically violent with each other. Um, there are still communities that are still functioning, you know, and the most important part of the democracy for people to be engaged with is their local communities, you know, the schools where their children attend, um, their neighborhoods, um, their counties, their cities. And, um, a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of engagement that is happening um, over the last few years with the pandemic, um, with the Trump administration, with a lot of the uh, legislation that is being proposed in state houses. Um, you're seeing people get involved who haven't been involved before. Um, so I don't want to gloss over or... Um, you know, uh, pretend like that's not happening. Because in many communities, democracy is very much alive and people are more engaged than they used to be. 
Um, or maybe they had never gone to a school board hearing, but now they're streamed online um, because the school board learned how to do that during the pandemic. Um, you know, that's allowing people to get more engaged. Um, but then there's the other, <laughs> the examples that we have seen. Um, you know, I mean, you've seen some communities take away public comment periods because it was just leading to threats against um, elected officials. Um, it was leading to um, dangerous situations. And um, that's troubling. The fuel that drives all of this democracy, I would argue, is is information and facts. And you have made a case that we are increasingly having difficulty arriving at a mutually agreed upon set of facts. That it's one thing to be standing on opposite sides of a fact and arguing the fact. It's entirely different if you're looking at two completely different statements, probably only one of which can be completely factual and trying to make your case based on that. You were a a former political reporter who spent a lot of years um, covering the Trump campaign rallies. And you've said that you talked both with protesters on the outside and Trump supporters on the inside. And that was one of the ways where you very quickly had illustrated to you the fact that we're struggling to go, to arrive at a, a mutually agreed upon set of facts and that we, as you say, are more quick to believe just the ones that you like best. What did you learn covering those rallies? Because I've read several reporters who said they really had their eyes opened by going to the rallies and speaking to people on the inside and on the outside, and it was like being in two different countries in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want the perfect illustration of polarization, um, it's a Trump rally. And I had been to a lot of uh, political campaign events um, that might have a couple of protesters outside, but um, nothing like what Trump inspired um, by his words and, and later by his actions as president. Um, and uh, just pushing people to f- uh, feel the need to f- physically s- show up and make clear that they didn't agree um, with what he was saying and what he was doing. And um, and listen, you know, in, in talking with protesters outside and, and supporters inside, um, you would definitely hear um, some conspiracy theories on both sides. You know, I mean, but for the most part, it was the Trump supporters indoors who um, just would share um, things that I I had not heard before, um, things that they had learned online um, that shaped the way they viewed the country. And and I think the number one thing that um, Trump showed was just the anger that is in the country, and the um, for many of his supporters, hearing the things that he would say, um, especially his comments about race, especially his comments about immigrants, um, especially his comments that um, placed blame on others for what the nation was going through, um, there was a big audience for that. There was a lot of anger in the country um, that a lot of people didn't realize just how vast that was. It's one thing for us to sit back and read about that in in the Washington Post and elsewhere or or listen to radio and watch video about it. But for someone who was in the middle of that, covering that, what was your initial reaction to this ideological gulf that you were experiencing? 
it, it changed over time. Um, I, you know, in the early days of, of Trump's campaign, um, it was just kind of surprising to see. Um, I, I think many were just surprised that he so quickly became so popular. Um, you know, and I think as time went on and he became the nominee and then he became president, um, he really forced people to take, to have opinions on things that maybe they hadn't formed an opinion on yet. Um, I think a lot of Americans will say that his presidency was a galvanizing moment for them in which they realized um, you know, maybe they hadn't protested before. Maybe they hadn't gotten involved before. Um, but what he was doing pushed them to do that. The uh, you, you mentioned that, that political affiliation has now become a big starting point for almost all other discussions. And I, that resonated with me because my in-laws, who both lived into their 90s, even their daughter, my wife, said it was a shock to her to find out in their later years their voting affiliation. She had always never known. It had never been an issue at home. It had never been brought up before. They just didn't talk politics as much as we do today. And in my mother-in-law's last few years, she and my wife became just daily correspondents with each other about the things they were seeing and reading. And my 90-year-old mother-in-law was pretty civically engaged. At a, a, and, and when I'd known her for decades without having any sense of how she felt politically, and it was fine. It didn't matter. But now it seems like that's that has become kind of the starting point. Is there anything we can do about that? Is that necessarily a negative that we have to sort of start with which initial comes after your name? Yeah, I mean, politics has become cultural, you know? And... Uh, you know, there's some ways, you know, I don't, I'm of the thinking that it's not bad for people to have political conversations. I actually think it's really good for people um, to talk with people. Um, the challenge, though, is that in some communities, for many people, um, you know, if you find out someone's a liberal, that might um it's when people refuse to even reach out to that person, when they've labeled them ahead of time and closed off the door and haven't been willing to, um, you know, they've just blanketed them um, with an assumption. That's when it gets tricky. And I think that's, uh, we, we lecture in all of our classes, I'm sure you heard it when you were an undergrad, about the dangers of stereotyping. Mm-hmm. And although that's, it's, it's part of what we do because it's one way for us to get our, our, our arms around a topic we otherwise can't grapple with. But particularly for folks in the Midwest, and maybe specifically for folks here in Nebraska, because it's an enlisted I really know much about, where we are famously known for having folks who may be fiscally conservative but socially more progressive on certain things, that must be really difficult now to start with that, with that okay, you are a Democrat, you are a Republican, so instantly I know which box you're going to tick on everything, when that may not be the case at all. I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I still fondly hope that, uh, that there is mutual ground to be met and that there's more that unites us than, than divides us. And I also agree that the political discussions are incredibly important because 
Otherwise, you have folks like the people I read about in Great Britain who the day after Brexit went, well, I know I voted for it, but I didn't think it would do anything. And you go, well, you don't really get a do-over on that after you've, after you've voted. So again, the importance of what you and your colleagues do and journalists everywhere do of trying to prevent or provide that fuel to drive democracy. So let me give you a couple of, of examples here of stories that have been just breaking here within the last couple of days uh, of, of your arrival on campus. One was a follow-up to a story on Friday in Texas, where uh, now Governor Greg Abbott of Texas says that he is willing to is leaning toward foregoing a prison sentence for Daniel Perry, who was convicted Friday in the shooting death of Garrett Foster at a Black Lives Rally demonstration back in 2020. Um, the, uh, the the verdict was guilty. The uh, governor said almost immediately, well, not almost immediately, said eventually he would look at a pardon. Some folks are saying that may have been pressured by some talk show hosts saying, show some spine, get out there and, and give this person a pardon. Um, others have said, no, he was going to get around to it eventually anyway. This is an unusual case because it pits two white males who are both um, – both have licenses to carry firearms. Both had them with them that night. And it brings into call uh, Texas uh, Stand Your Ground law. The other is a story that happened just right before you arrived on campus, which was the bank shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, that left uh, now five people dead. And then the shooter on top of that, an employee of the bank, uh, walked in at least mercifully before the bank was open or the carnage could have been a lot worse. Apparently targeted the people he was looking for. But social media just has gone to town on both of these cases, pointing fingers at people. And I found it particularly interesting in the Texas one because you have now a community that's, that's the two guys are remarkably alike, but even that community is now getting fractionalized by social media and supposed experts who are now suddenly acoustical experts and are saying, oh, those were AK-47 shots that were fired first. And I'm like, really? We're to this? But... If folks are getting their information through those kinds of rabbit holes and get pulled in really different directions really quickly before we know anything about anybody, what do you say are the best practices that people should use when encountering breaking news like this? Because instead of saying, well, we'll watch the news tonight, we're now riding along with the reporters while they're covering the story, and you and your colleagues, and particularly the broadcast live folks, are having to try to sort out and present details at first blush, that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and this is really difficult um, because everyone wants to know what happened and they want to know it immediately. We want to know it. We want to be able to tell people what happened. Um, we can't responsibly do that until we um, are able to verify that information. And... In that void can come um, other information um, that hasn't been verified. So, you know, the number one thing, I mean, one thing that I often tell reporters when we're in a breaking news situation is take a deep breath. <laughs> What's our sourcing on that? How do we know that? Um, and if it's not solid, Let's get it solid before we put it out there. Because especially in cases of life and death, we can't get this wrong, you know? Um, I guess my gentle advice to, to listeners and, and viewers and readers is to understand that 
we do not know right away what happened. Um, sometimes it takes several days for us to learn. Um, sometimes the information that police first put out is wrong and it changes. And we need some patience. We need some understanding. Um, and in those moments when you're searching to learn what happened and you find something, pretend you're a reporter and ask, who's reporting this? How do they know it? What's their sourcing for it? And if it's someone you've never heard of on Twitter, you know, is that, <laughs> that, that, that's not the same as the Washington Post reporting it. And you need to take that with a grain of salt um, and not spread it if you don't know that it's true. But it's hard to do because we are humans and we want to know what happened and we want to know right away. And with the internet, with social media, everyone is now a sleuth and a detective and there are Reddit th threads devoted to solving these crimes before, uh, you know, before the police do, uh, before the media uh, reports what happened. And you just need to treat that with a lot of skepticism, especially in cases where um, the facts of the case are going to inflame emotions, are going to inflame local politics, are going to have just ripple effects throughout your community or throughout the country. I want to amplify a point you made earlier on that, too, because I, I really think it's critical, which is to, to take a look at uh, the sourcing of, of the material you're getting. And not only that, because as you mentioned, if there is a void at all, the people who have an agenda are going to be quick to try to try to get their agenda out in front. So that's the one you hear about first. And everybody else has to try to either debunk or defend their own position over the agenda that was put in front of them. And to ask yourself, if I'm reading this account, what possible motive might someone have for putting this account out there other than pursuit of the truth? And that causes me, I know, to just discredit a lot of the things Absolutely. that I see. That's, that's tough. Um, how do we rebuild? How do, how do your, your colleagues rebuild trust in this kind of an atmosphere when the rankings of journalists continue to, to you know, struggle what best practices do you have to try to employ for yourself and your colleagues to try to rebuild the public's faith and trust in journalism? Because it's critical that they have that faith. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just speak for me and, and what I've really been focused on and, and working on. Um, the number one is to really listen to the criticism um, of our work and, and the pushback. Uh, there's a lot of it, and most of it is just uh, attacks and nastiness and pettiness. Um, you know, but when people are coming to us and saying, um, you use the wrong words to describe this, or you're missing this point of view, or why did you cover that but not this, um, we need to listen and reflect on that. And we're learning as we go. Um, I, I've tried to be... Um, very humble and very open-minded in hearing um, criticism. And, um, you know, I'm not going to let it scare me into doing anything. 
Um, but when there are fair points, I'm going to learn from them. Uh, the other thing we need to do is just be radically transparent. <laughs> you know, um, there's a popular phrase like do the research. You know, everyone feels like they're doing the research and they're finding things that others aren't finding. And we need to, reporters put a lot of work into the reports that they put together. I mean, some stories take months um, and they read so effortlessly. And we need to find ways to communicate to readers how we did our research. Um, we've started adding context boxes to some of our stories to say, um, you know, how many interviews went into this? Maybe it's a story that focuses on, on just one person's story, but to tell readers all of the other people that we talked to to put this story together. Um, we need to link to public documents. You know, we need to link to laws. We need to link to other coverage. Uh, we need to show our work. Um, and we also just need to, uh, you know, find ways to explain why we decided to do stories and how we went about reporting them and how they came together. Um, we also, we've, we've been doing a lot of work recently um, explaining things better. Uh, it's this hot new field of journalism called explanatory journalism. It's been around for decades. Um, but, you know, if something happens and people are Googling, what is this? We should give them an answer to that, you know? Sometimes it can feel too basic or too beneath um, our correspondence to answer these basic questions about things, but there's a real service in putting together Q&As, um, to answering questions on Twitter, um, to hosting um, uh, conversations where people can send in their questions and, and have them answered, um, you know, to putting things in plain, language that people can better understand, um, just to kind of demystifying this whole experience and to make our coverage um, more accessible. Um, and again, every story is an opportunity to rebuild trust. And uh, every interview we do is an opportunity to rebuild that. And uh, all of my colleagues um, have dedicated their lives to doing this sort of work. Since there is no uh, radical yes or radical no on any one of these issues, tell me your personal take on social media. One thing we know is the traditional media platforms are powerless to dictate where the public is going to go next. So while we fought against social media and many traditional platforms for a long time and then grudgingly learned to live with it, what's good about it, what's bad about it? How should people make best, best practices of social media use? Yeah, uh, um, it, social media is exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting. Uh, it is important for, I think it is important for journalists to be um, on these platforms. Uh, we need to go, we, we can't wait for people to come to our news websites to find information. We need to go where they are. Um, you know, for a while that was just Facebook or just Twitter. Um, you know, now it's, it's TikTok, it's Instagram, it's um, all of these other, you know, but also, I mean, our reporters will do interviews with local TV and national TV and local radio. Um, like there's been a big push to just get out there and 
tell these stories to new audiences in new formats. And if we're not there, someone else is going to be there. You know, anywhere there's a void, people will rush in. And um, it's our job to not just do good journalism, but make sure it connects with people. You've seen, we've, we've all seen over the last, well, starting before the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people in a lot of different industries just walk away from their jobs rather than deal with the increasingly confrontational nature of their work or with all the changes and the stress. Journalists certainly have been in that fray as well, particularly as uh, the risk of personal threat and attack and doxing of journalists' public information and their families' information is becoming more common. What motivates you to, to keep going and keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, this is very real. And, uh, you know, I mean, journalists have always kind of been in the public eye. We've kind of put put ourselves there. Um, you know, so have elected officials. Um, in the last few years, we've seen county health officers face this level of scrutiny. School board members. School board members. Yeah. Election officials. Um, and it's very real and it's very damaging. And, um, you know, many people in many different lines of work, not just journalism, doing that work is putting their family in harm's way. Um, they live under a cloud of worrying of what's going to come next. Um, and it's also just, it's exhausting to have your integrity questioned day after day. Um, you know, to kind of wonder, wait, am I just misseeing all of this? <laughs> How could it be possible that this many people are, are attacking me? Um, it's exhausting, and a lot of people have left their positions because of it. Um, I, I'm very lucky at, at the Washington Post that um, there is a lot of institutional support for people on staff and, um, you know, in keeping us secure, in keeping us safe, um, you know, if someone's getting dragged on Twitter, uh, people rally <laughs> to make sure they're doing okay. Uh, and, you know, especially during the Trump administration, uh, it, it just became part of my life being attacked on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you say you don't let it get to you. It was hard. It was hard. It was really hard. And it came from all various different directions. Um, but... You know, my editors at the time told me, and and this is what I tell reporters now, that you just got to, like, the work we do is important, and we got to stay focused on that. And we can't let the attacks scare us away from doing our jobs. What about your time as we wrap up here? What about your time at UNL and the College of Journalism and Mass Communications comes back into your life every day? Do you find yourself uh, leaning back on those old skills you learned here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all the basics. Uh, you know, various different uh, grammatical <laughs> lessons. You know, there's one professor's voice who, who sometimes rings in my head uh, as, as I'm writing, um, but also just the leadership opportunities that I, I had here and the opportunities to uh, learn and grow and, um, you know, just be pushed to do really good work. 
Well, you certainly jumped on those opportunities and used them well, and we all benefit from it. We appreciate you being back on campus and keep doing what you're doing. It's critical work. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. Our guest today on Campus Voice is Jenna Johnson, Deputy Deputy Democracy Editor at the Washington Post and an alum of the College of Journalism and Mass Communications here at UNL. He was back on campus this week to present the Celine Lecture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Rick Alloway. This has been Campus Voices on 90.3 KRNU. And as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.